Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> like, I always love how 8 a.m. is more awake than Friday and Saturday. It's, it's unreal. You guys are unreal. All right. Well, um, we've been going through the spiritual gifts. That's been what our series has been about. Um, what has been our tagline? Our Members are ministers. So we're going to continue to nuance that and think about that as we walk through the final section of Scripture, which will take us many weeks. Um, some of you know I do a little bit of teaching at Viola, and I got a call about two months ago where a guy had dropped out of teaching a class on Paul. So they called me and said, would you be willing to teach the class? And I've never even taken a class on Paul. So I said, absolutely, yes, no problem. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of research on Paul, and I'm excited to go through uh, one of his more intense letters as we look at the various things he has to say to the Corinthian church. And we're going to be doing that for the next few weeks. Excited? <laughs> All right, open your Bibles. <laughs> you guys are just so nice. I just love it. <laughs> open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll read it together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are, various, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Amen? As we look through this section of Scripture over the next few weeks, it's important for us to remember something about the nature of letters in the New Testament. That is, letters in the New Testament are occasional. And what I mean by that is, as Paul is writing this letter, he is writing to a church, an actual church in Corinth, at a very particular time to address very specific, particular issues. It was written to them. It was their mail before it was our mail. However, in God's providence, he has maintained that this letter is in our New Testament and it continues to be a resource for us as we think about all the things that Paul teaches the Corinthians today and for the next few weeks, spiritual gifts. So as we go through this letter... And we think about what it means and what it's teaching us. We have to first understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church. So background is really, really helpful here. I want to begin with the city of Corinth. Who's heard of the city of Corinth? Just because of the letter of Corinthians or? No, you've heard it from something else? Just interested. All right, so the city of Corinth is a few hundred miles from Athens, miles from Athens. We can see a picture. Look at that. Zoomed in there. Can you guys read that? A few hundred miles from Athens, it's a center of commerce. It was in between two ports. So what would happen was boats would drop off stuff on one side. The Corinthians would come and grab it. They'd carry it a few miles and drop it off on the other side so ships didn't have to sail with all their stuff all the way around this large isthmus. At 144 B.C., about 200 years before Paul is writing this letter, 
the Romans came into Corinth while it was still one of the Greek city-states and completely destroyed it, and it laid in ruins for a hundred years. And then this guy who you may have heard of, Julius Caesar, have you heard of him? Julius Caesar turns it into a Roman colony, and then many freedmen, former slaves, come and populate the city. And that's important because in Corinth, unlike the rest of the empire, these former slaves, these freedmen, could serve as magistrates. They could become politically and economically powerful. They could do social climbing. There was upward mobility in Rome, or in Corinth. They were able to go from having nothing and being owned by somebody else to being politically powerful in the city that they resided in. Start with nothing, move up to the top. That's what they could do. Also, Corinth was a hotbed of pagan worship. It's for a number of reasons. One is that Corinth is part of the pagan world. So you would expect there to be pagan worship there. In addition to that, because it's a center of commerce, because it's an important market route, because lots of people from different places are coming in and out of the city, they would bring with them, what do you think? Their gods and their religion. So Corinth became a center of pagan worship. We know this from Acts. We know this from another, a number of other sources. We know this from excavations. We also know from excavations of ancient Corinth that um, there was a Jewish community. We know this because we find bits of Hebrew and we found the remains of a synagogue. So Corinth, the city that Paul's writing to, the church in the city that Paul is writing to, it's a young city. It's not very old. Secondly, it's saturated with idolatry. Thirdly, The church that Paul is writing to is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And there's a social economic ladder that everyone can climb. People can become social elites. They can become political elites. They can become economic elites. The vision we have of the American dream, starting with nothing, ending with everything, which, by the way, is not the way to live your life, (laughs) that was in Corinth as well. So Paul's writing to this church that's in some way similar to our own. Paul was the one who began the church in Corinth. We know in Acts that Paul had how many missionary journeys? Three, it's always the right answer for Christian things. Three. You're just going to guess three or seven. So um, Paul has three missionary journeys. On a second missionary journey, he goes through Corinth, he preaches there, people come to faith, and then he lives in Corinth with this young church for 18 months. And after he's raised up leaders and established the authority structure there, and he feels like the church is ready to go, he leaves. And two years later, he has occasion to write a letter to the church in Corinth. And that's for a couple of reasons. One reason is that he's heard some very disturbing things about the church in Corinth. If you've read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you understand what some of those are. Secondly, they have sent him a letter asking him six questions. So Paul, in our passage over the next four or five weeks is answering the fifth of the six questions that the Corinthians had for him. He deals first with the rumors he's heard, then he answers their questions. So, when we read this letter, even though it's about a church or to a church that's 2,000 years away and thousands of miles away and across a different culture, it's also a place where we should see ourselves. When we read the letter that God has preserved for us in the New Testament, we're to be reminded that although it was first written to Corinth, it was also written to us. Corinth was falling apart, there were problems in the church, and Paul needed to address a number of issues, and one of those issues was spiritual gifts. So we have to keep three things in mind. The first is, Paul's letter is specifically to them. Secondly, we still need to hear and learn from what Paul had to teach them. 
Do you hear that? Thirdly, God has offered this letter to us because we need it. We need this letter. Today, over the last few hundred years, there's been this really important movement in the worldwide church called the Charismatic Movement. Who's heard of that? All of you probably should have heard of it because our church stands in the tradition of the Charismatic Movement. What is my title? Anyone look at my title? Okay, how do you feel about that? Some people are like, I don't know. Trust me, we'll get, we'll get back to it. The charismatic church is culturally significant for us because it has been, in some ways, a very dividing issue in the church. The word charismatic comes from a Greek word, charisma, which is one of the words that Paul uses in this letter and in this section to talk about spiritual gifts. It's in our chapter. And we stand in this tradition and we think about what it means to be charismatic. We're asking this important question, what does it mean to be charismatic? And probably a more personal one than that, are we charismatic? Are we a charismatic church? And there's two caricatures that I can think of as we think about the charismatic church. One is in the brains of those who are anti-charismatic. Those who are anti-charismatic, they think about the charismatic church or what we call the charismatic church and they say it's disorderly, it's people running around, invested in their feelings and their emotions, they've sacrificed good theology, they're interested in big churches and poor structure. And some of you guys are like, yeah, that's right. Then on the other side, there's charismatics that are thinking about the anti or the non-charismatic church. And they think, oh yeah, those guys who are more interested in having good structure and order than the power of the living God in the midst of us. So you have these two caricatures and neither of them are totally fair. Neither of them are totally true. And some of us are kind of in the midst of thinking about these things. We go to a charismatic church in some senses and in other senses we don't. And we're trying to answer this question, what does it mean to be a charismatic church? What does that mean? And we answer that question. We answer that question by going back to what the Bible teaches. Amen? God has provided for us in the letter to the Corinthians the scriptural resource to be better thinkers and better believers. As Paul instructs the church at Corinth, God is going to instruct us. So I think this passage teaches us three things about spiritual gifts, about charisma. The first is this. Spiritual gifts... Confess Jesus as Lord. Spiritual gifts confess Jesus as Lord. The second is spiritual gifts are graciously distributed by God. Spiritual gifts are graciously distributed by God. Thirdly, spiritual gifts manifest God for the common good. They manifest God for the common good. So first, spiritual gifts confess Jesus as Lord. As we've done this series on spiritual gifts, we've kind of gone each week and we've in many ways not dealt very specifically with what the gifts are. We're going to do that a little bit later. But we get to this passage and the tendency in this passage is to jump right to verse 7 or 8 where Paul starts listing the spiritual gifts and then think about what we can do to know what gift is ours. But that's not what we need to do. We have to understand the context for these spiritual gifts. Paul doesn't begin by listing the gifts. He provides a context for them, instructions for them. I'll tell you a story. Um, who likes macaroni and cheese? If you don't like macaroni and cheese, I don't trust you. That's a problem. It's a problem. You like macaroni and cheese. It comes in a blue box shaped like dinosaurs. Tastes really well. Tastes really good. What was the weird word to use there? As a kid, I loved macaroni and cheese. So I, um, I would make it for lunch um, every day. I was, I was a chubby kid, but I was happy. I was happy. And here's what I would do. I would pick out the box of the particular shape I wanted that week, dinosaurs. They had like um, video game shapes. That was fun, too. And I would pour the noodles in the... In the um, 
boiling water. I'd put the little cheese packet that I'm sure is very healthy on the side, and I'd throw the box in the trash. And I think, okay, now I've got to set the timer for how many minutes it needs to cook in this boiling water. And I think, how many minutes does it need to cook? And I have to walk back to the trash can and pull the box back out. Who's done that? Yeah, every one of you has done that, right? So then I'm like, oh, eight minutes. That's true. I remember eight minutes. So I put eight minutes on. And I go, okay, when it's done, it's time to put the butter and the cheese and all the bad stuff in it. And I'd be like, how much do I put of each thing? So like, walk back and pull it out again. You guys know what I'm talking about? As an adult, I do this when I make food for my kids because I make them very healthy food as well. Here's the thing. Like, it's easy to just take the instructions and toss them in the trash. But look how often I had to go back to look at them. Paul is providing a context for the spiritual gifts, a really, really important context, really, really important guidelines for understanding them and what they are and why they matter. So read with me verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I'm hesitant to use Greek whenever I preach because I want you to be confident in the English translations of the Bibles you have. You can read those and you can learn from them and they're sufficient. But there is this, this one issue here. The word Paul begins with when he says spiritual gifts is this word, pneumatikos. And it means spiritual things. It doesn't mean spiritual gifts. It doesn't start out that way. Contextually, contextually, Paul means it that way. But it's a more basic word than spiritual gifts. The most basic translation is spiritual things. The idea in this first time Paul says spiritual gifts, the idea of gift or grace isn't present in the word. Now, there's a reason for that. This is related probably to what the Corinthians were asking it was related to the things they were concerned about. Remember, Paul is answering one of the questions that the Corinthians have for them, have for him. So they probably asked him something like this about spiritual things. What do they tell us about the people who practice them? So what was happening in the Corinthian church is very likely this was the case. There were leaders in the Corinthian church after Paul had left who would begin to speak in tongues and be very loudly and ostentatiously charismatic. And there were many people in the church that were not any of these things. And do you remember the social ladder in Corinth? Do you remember how you can be an economic elite or a political elite or a social elite? What was happening in the church is leaders who had these more ostentatious, showy gifts were becoming the spiritual elite. They had found a ladder to climb in the church. So the church as a whole writes a letter to Paul because they're a little concerned about this. And they say, concerning these spiritual things, can you, can you tell us a bit more about them? Are these people who... Are the ones who have these ostentatious gifts, are, are they the ones who are most spiritually important in our church? Are they our leaders because of how spiritual they are? Are they better because they have these gifts? That's one of the things that the Corinthians are asking Paul. They're concerned about climbing the ladder. So Paul needs to deal with this problem. He's going to answer the question they have, this division that's happening in the Corinthian church. And he begins in an interesting way. He begins first by referring back to their pagan past. Most of them would have been Gentiles. Even though there would be some Jews, most of them would have been Gentiles. So he's referring back to their pagan past. And he says, do you remember, do you remember when you used to walk around and you'd be led to idols, to mute idols? And Paul is using the typical Jewish um, argument against idols, calling them mute. And he's referring to this thing, the Pompeii, what they would have done in Corinth. Many of the pagans in Corinth, if not all the pagans in Corinth, 
would have gone through this parade, this ceremony, at least once a year, where they would walk through a particular route in the city, and the city's route, the route they would go through, would end before one of the idols that they worshipped. And you know what would happen when they got there? Nothing. The idol is not alive. It doesn't speak, it doesn't move, it doesn't really even look back at them. They would get to the idol, and when they got there, it would be speechless. And Paul's reminding them, you would walk through this route, you'd get finally to the idol, and the idol wouldn't say anything to you. You don't worship that kind of God anymore. You worship a God who is a living, speaking God. That's how he begins. The God you worship is alive. He's not a piece of stone. Now, then after that, he provides this two-sided, like, test. And this has often been misleading for many people in the church. We'll read it real quickly just so we remember it in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And people have often understood this to be like how we determine whether someone has a good spirit or a bad spirit. Anyone ever heard that as the explanation for this passage? None of you? Oh, good. You've been taught well. Good. Have you been going here for a long time? Zach's taking good care of you? Can you guys, my boss is here. Can you please just? (laughs) Okay. So there's this two-sided test. It's kind of confusing. People think, is it about good gifts or bad gifts? That really doesn't make a lot of sense because if you ask any, anybody at all, can you say Jesus is Lord? They're going to be like, yeah, I can say Jesus is Lord. That's pretty easy for me to do. I can speak and I know those words and I can put them together in that particular order. Does that make sense? So people thought, okay, so are there people in the Corinthian church who are saying Jesus is accursed? Is that the case? There are people who are there who are saying Jesus is accursed and Paul needs to address this issue and he's saying that you can't say that in the Holy Spirit. And that seems odd because Paul so casually mentions what would be such a dramatic, controversial statement. Maybe if you've read some Paul, you realize he's not like the most easygoing guy. You guys read some Paul? You read some Galatians? Yeah, Paul in Galatians is super angry about circumcision And he says to the Galatians, oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And goes on to just destroy them, right? Paul's an intense guy. You can imagine if people in the church were saying Jesus is accursed, he'd have a few more words for them. So what most people think is actually this is a hypothetical situation that Paul set up. No one in the church is saying Jesus is accursed. But here's what he is doing. He's saying those who have the Holy Spirit, what they say is Jesus is Lord. He's saying this is the confession that the Holy Spirit leads to. He's saying those who say Jesus is Lord have the Holy Spirit. Those who genuinely actually say the words and aren't just mouthing them, they have the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual. Now Paul's doing something clever and honestly he's being true here. What he's doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's saying it's not ecstatic tongues that make you spiritual. It's not having ostentatious gifts that make you spiritual. It's your confession. So thereby he's saying, everyone who is in this church, everyone who genuinely believes that Jesus is Lord, all of them have the Spirit and live by the Spirit. Amen? He's saying, there's no ladder. There's no ladder. There's no spiritual elite. You're all walking in the Spirit by the grace of God. He's dealing with this problem quickly. The Corinthians were being spiritual in their own way before they were being confessional. That's our confession. Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. And today, we have a similar problem that the Corinthians do, where we prioritize being spiritual 
over being confessional. If you go to your office or you go to the university or wherever you spend your time outside of these walls on the weekends, you can be spiritual, right? It's okay to be spiritual. The American civil religion, it, it, it permits spirituality. It encourages spirituality. It kind of cheers on and is excited about spirituality. What you can't really be is confessional. So at your office you can say, I'm spiritual, but you can't very easily say, Jesus is Lord. It makes people uncomfortable. It's not really allowed. In the public sector, spirituality by itself is okay. Jesus is not okay. And that's problematic. Here's the real problem. That attitude has invaded our church. It slowly made its way into the church, where we prioritize spirituality over the confession. The same problem that the Corinthians were doing, or were having. Here's an example. How many of you guys go to Christian bookstores? A few of you. Not ours. Other ones. Ours is fine. Just want to be clear. We have a great Christian bookstore. Uh, I like Christian bookstores. I go in there for fish-shaped mints and cross-shaped mints. <laughs> Christian bookstores have this weird thing now. Um, and I don't know what they were like uh, 40 years ago. But now I go into a Christian bookstore and I say, hey, do you guys have a good book where I can learn good theology and understand Jesus better? And they're like, yeah, we have some Joel Osteen over in the <laughs> corner. You can pick that up, right? Christian bookstores have been transformed from places where you can find books telling us about our confession to places where you find books telling us about ourselves. They're not Christ-centered books. They're self-centered books. That's what a lot of Christian bookstores are today. I want us to like examine our lives. The things that we label as Christian, which, by the way, the only thing that's Christian is a human being. The things that we label as Christian-flavored. Are we being spiritual before we're being confessional? Because here's the thing. Spirituality without Jesus is not actually from the Spirit. Spirituality without Jesus is not from the Spirit. The watchword for believers, the true test of spirituality, it is our confession. It's our confession. This is what spiritual gifts are meant to do. They lead us to our central confession as believers, the thing that we share, the thing that's the foundation for all that we do, all that we say, and all that we live for. And that confession is Jesus is Lord. That's how Paul begins. He doesn't jump right to the spiritual gifts. He begins by saying, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Secondly, spiritual gifts are graciously given by God. Spiritual gifts are graciously given by God. Read verses 4 through 7 with me. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So as I said, this passage begins when Paul talks about spiritual gifts with the Greek word pneumatikos. You guys can maybe see it on the screen. That's how this passage starts. They ask Paul about the spiritual things. Then Paul, in the Greek, changes words. He changes from the word pneumatikos to the word charisma. And some of you won't be able to see that in your Bibles, but I promise you that's the case. Pneumatikos emphasizes spirituality. Charisma, it emphasizes something else. It emphasizes the idea of God's grace. The idea of something being given to you in grace. Something graciously offered. He's moving away from spirituality language and moving toward grace language. He began with the word they use. And he gave them a new word. 
because he wants to reorient the way they're thinking about these gifts. Paul's used this word before. He uses it in other places in his letters. We can see an example in 2 Corinthians. Here Paul is using it to talk about gracious favor. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Blessing there is the word charisma. We can see it in Romans. In Romans 1, 11 through 12. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, and watch this, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Here's another extremely important use of the word charisma. In Romans 6.23. You guys know this verse? Do you? Yeah? How many of you have taken Zach's class? Okay. Starts April 19th? All right. April 19th. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul uses the word charisma, the one that he's using for spiritual gifts in our passage this weekend. He's using that word to describe the gracious gift of salvation offered through Jesus. He's giving them a new word, a new way of understanding the phenomena that they're seeing in their church. Paul wants to transform their ideas about what spiritual gifts are. He's saying to them, spiritual gifts, they are not a badge of superior spirituality. They are a mark of undeserved grace. He wants them to see that these grace gifts, these spiritual gifts, they come in the same way that salvation comes, by the grace of God. And then Paul goes on to connect different qualities of the spiritual gifts to different members of the Trinity. He begins by connecting the word charisma gifts to spirit. He says there is a, there is a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And he's probably doing that to remind them, even though he's changing words to this word that has to do with grace and the word spiritual isn't in there, that these gifts are still spiritual. He's just trying to reprioritize the way they think about them. Then he connects the services to the Lord. He says there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. Who's the Lord? Good, that's our confession. We'll practice that more. Here's what he's doing. He's drawing on the deep well of Jesus' life and ministry to connect services, which are connected to gifts, they're part of gifts, to the Lord who is the servant. We can think back to Jesus' road to Jerusalem. He's done his entire ministry. He's healed the sick and done all this stuff. And now his eyes are pointed to Jerusalem where he would die for us as a servant. And he says this in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's drawing on this idea, this image of Jesus, this true fact about Jesus, and conveying to us what that means for spiritual gifts. And then he continues. And he connects the activities to God. And by God, I believe he means God the Father here. He says, remember that God, remember that God who spoke and the world was created. Do you remember that God who heard his people crying out in Israel and he met Moses out in the desert as a burning bush? Do you remember the God that delivered his people from slavery by signs and wonders, that gave them food and water in the desert? Do you remember the God who was with Elijah, who sent a pillar of fire down onto the altar and humiliated the pagan um, 
prophets of Baal? Do you remember the God that was with his people as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire? He's like, do you remember that God, the God that you've read about, that you've worshipped, that you've heard about, that you've gone to synagogue and church and heard stories about over and over and over again? The God that's with his people in smoke and fire, he's saying, that God is now with you in smoke and fire. That's what he's saying. He is drawing on the diversity of the Trinity to also make a point about unity. Different things, same purpose. Different persons, same will. And then he continues with a summary of verse 7. He says this. He says, a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. I skipped a slide there. So he says this. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. All right, we made it to the gifts. How you guys feel? Gifts? All right. So we've been going along each week, and we've kind of walked through gift lists really quickly, and maybe we should spend some time in the gifts and talking about them a little bit. Would you guys like to do that? Okay, well, if you return next week. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The first thing I want to talk about is the word manifestation. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. When something is manifest, it means you take something that you can't really see, that isn't very visible, and you make it more visible and easier to see. That's what making something manifest is. God is made known to his people when the world sees them using their gifts. He's saying, in the using of gifts, the Spirit, God himself, is made manifest. He's saying, when we faithfully minister with our gifts, people can see God more easily. More specifically, he is made manifest. He's made more visible. Not because of how spiritual we are, but because of how gracious God is. Amen? We're going to go through this gift list real quickly. I want to talk about a few things. I have some caveats first to begin with. I have resources for you on the back of your sermon notes. You guys see that? They're in Turabian format, Chicago MLA style. You guys like making bibliographies? I love it, so I made one for you this week. (laughs) Feel free to go through and look at that. There's some more detail there. Some caveats we need to talk about, some things I need to sort of express to you before we go through this list. The first is this. Paul kind of divides this list into three sections. The first section being gifts of instruction, the next section being supernatural gifts or sign gifts, and the third section being gifts of inspired utterances. However, this division is not really hard and fast. It's something that we maybe detect in Paul, but there's going to be overlap between these sections. Secondly, this gift doesn't define, this list doesn't define any of the gifts. It just lists them. So I'm going to try and give you definitions, and that's going to be from a lot of research and looking at various parts of Scripture. But Paul is more interested in telling them what the gifts are right now, telling them the list, than he is defining each one specifically. Next, this list isn't exhaustive. No list in the New Testament is exhaustive. However, it's representative. And lastly, there's going to be overlap between the different gifts, even in this list. There's some distinction and some overlap. So shall we go through them? Okay, first, gifts of instruction, word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. Now, 
Word of wisdom and word of knowledge, they are gifts where people say things to the church for their instruction. But these are not things that we don't already find in Scripture. So you know the back of your Bible is that section where there's like a blank space and there's notes? That's not for you to add to the Bible things that people say. Those are not for words of wisdom and words of knowledge. These are things that are designed to instruct the church. They remind people of what the Bible has already taught us. They're not things that we probably don't already know. Now, gift word of, uh, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, there's some overlap, right? They might be distinct in some ways, but there's some overlap in other ways. So it's important for us to understand that as we go through these gifts, there's going to be some overlap. Next, gifts of supernatural power or sign gifts. These are the kind of exciting ones ones we talk a lot about. We're going to deal more fully with this in a couple weeks as we talk about the spiritual gifts. There's a section that Paul's going to talk more deeply about these things, and we're going to address them later. But I want to talk through this list real quickly. The first is faith. The first is faith, the gift of faith. I want to be clear right from the outset that this is not saving faith. Every believer has saving faith. This is not saving faith. This is the sort of faith I think that Jesus is talking about when he says you can have faith that moves mountains. I also want to reiterate or explain, I think that this is also the faith that persists in believers' hearts when mountains don't move. The gift of faith. Next, the gift of healing. The gift of healing. The gift of healing here is the gifts of healing. It's plural. And what that probably means is that there's various people healing different things. There's not one person who's healing everyone. This is not regular medical attention. This is not going to the doctor. This is not going to physical therapy. This is not getting medication. All those things are good, and you should definitely do those things. But I think what Paul is talking about is the sort of miraculous ministry we see in Acts and the sort of miraculous ministry we see in Jesus' life. Miraculous healings of people. Now, this is a really important sidebar here. This gift is so often used to elevate the person who exercises it. This gift is by the Spirit's leading... It's in the Spirit's power, and it's for the glory of God. Always. It's never not those things. The next gift that Paul mentions is the working of miracles. And this is plural also. And what it probably means is these are miraculous gifts that aren't healings, exercising of demons, or maybe nature miracles, things like that. They're plural because probably different people are doing different things. In some ways, it's like connected to healing. You feel like healing could be a category of this, but that's not what Paul does. He lists it separately. And again, this miracle is not for our own elevation. It is by the Spirit's leading, in the Spirit's power, and for the glory of God. Always. Always. Next, prophecy. Prophecy. We're going to learn more about prophecy later. Paul has some things to say about prophecy, but I want to give you a definition. The gift of prophecy consists of spontaneous, spirit-filled, intelligible, and orderly utterances for the building up of the congregation as they gather. A few things. One is prophecy is not just telling the future. People think prophecy is just foretelling. You've probably heard this before. Prophecy is not foretelling. It's forth-telling. It may include the future, but what it's mostly about, what it's primarily about, is telling people the truth. The truth about God's justice and the truth about God's mercy. Again, prophecy is not going to add to our Bibles. Like the word of wisdom, like the word of knowledge, it's going to be confirmed by what's already in our Bibles. It's by the Spirit's leading, it's in the Spirit's power, 
And it's for whose glory? God's glory. Lastly, we come to what every single commentator called the problem child of the gifts. A little bit of a dividing one. Tongues. Who's heard of tongues? Everyone probably should have heard of tongues by now. Every commentator made the same joke, which was fun. They all called it the problem child. Like, I don't know if they all thought of that themselves, or one guy wrote it and everyone else stole it. I don't know what the deal is. But this is a problem because it's often a dividing gift. It's a divisive one. We're going to talk a lot more about tongues a little bit later in the series because Paul spends a lot more time on it. But for now, a simple definition. Tongues is when someone, by the Spirit's leading, says unintelligible words. They don't understand what they mean, and the hearers don't understand what they mean, and very importantly, they are directed toward God. This is not what we see at Pentecost. Who remembers what happens in Pentecost? Just raise just by a show of hand. Okay. Pentecost is when the Spirit descends on God's people as the church is forming. And the various apostles and disciples there, they begin to speak in different languages. And what's happened is this is a festival, it's a Jewish festival. There are Jews from all around the known world who have come back to the temple to celebrate this festival. They don't know the local languages, but then suddenly they hear the gospel being preached in their own language because the Spirit empowered the apostles to do that. That's not what's really happening here. When we're talking about tongues, we're talking about something that's like language adjacent. It is not necessarily an earthly language. There's a distinction there. Also, it's controlled. It's orderly. It's not that the person is out of control. They're led by the Spirit to do this thing. It's not this like eyes roll into the back of your head and just saying whatever comes into your mind. It's Spirit-led. Okay? Along with this, Paul lists the interpretation of tongues. This is when someone provides intelligible words for what has just been said. And who are they directed towards? God. All right. Well, if you're confused, if you're wondering how you can know what your spiritual gift is, if you're like, where is the test in the back so I can figure out which one of these things is mine, I can get to work. If you're still left wanting... If your question is still like, what is my gift? It's because Paul is not answering that question here. That is not the question that Paul is answering. He's describing the gifts. He's listing the gifts. He's not defining them in very clear ways. And he's not telling us how we know which one is our gift. He does tell us what the gifts are for, though. Look at verse 7 one more time. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Here's what Paul does not say. He does not say to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit so that they might feel like fulfilled members of the church. He doesn't say to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit so that they can reach their full potential. He doesn't say that each is given a manifestation of the Spirit so they can heighten their sense of self. He doesn't say that each is given a manifestation of the Spirit so they can climb the spiritual ladder. He doesn't say to each is given so that they know what to do with the rest of their lives. Paul is interested in what? The common good. He's saying the gifts are so that we can show God to each other. So the Holy Spirit is present with us. So the entire community can receive the benefits of what God has graciously given to us. This is why members are ministers. God is present with us and he empowers us to minister to each other for the common good and for the glory of God. Now remember this. No gift is given to an individual. 
that is not actually given to the whole body. Not all of us receive the same gift, but we all benefit from the same set of gifts. The whole common good benefits. Worship team, you can come up. That's how you know I'm almost done. I want to return real quickly to what my title is. Every church is charismatic. Every church is charismatic. Some of you guys read that and like, not my church. My church is orderly. <laughs> my church is not charismatic. I think that uh, that's actually a true statement. I believe it's true, and I think many of you will also believe it's true. And I want to explain why I think it's true. The word charismatic, as I said earlier, comes from the word charisma. This Greek word that Paul uses to describe a lot of things. One of the things he's describing are the spiritual gifts. And the word charisma comes from the word charis in Greek, which means grace. They're very related words. They're so related that they relate to each other in a very specific way. Charisma, charis. Charisma, charis. You see how they sound similar? Charisma ends has like this ma ending. And in Greek, the ma ending does this. It shows a concrete result of an abstract idea. So a charisma is the concrete result of grace. Every church is charismatic and that is the concrete result of God's grace. It is the fruit of what God worked in Christ on the cross. It's born by that grace and by God's will it's sustained continually by that grace, partially through the spiritual gifts. It's also what makes God's grace known to the world. We see this. We see this as gifts are poured out. They're distributed to us as God's people. But we see it more importantly when Jesus is offered as a gift on the cross. And we receive grace. This is the first spiritual gift. All the other gifts, they come from that one. Amen? So let's practice our confession. Repeat after me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You wake up in the morning. Jesus is Lord. You make your breakfast. Jesus is Lord. You go to work and you have a good day. Jesus is Lord. You're going bankrupt. Jesus is Lord. Your marriage is on the brink of divorce. Jesus is Lord. Your children are walking away from the faith. Jesus is Lord. You don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Jesus is Lord. That is our confession. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything you provided for us. We thank you for the hope we have in your son. We thank you for the gifts you've given us today. I pray that as we continue through this series, as we continue studying your word, we remember that we are called to minister and to serve each other that you would give us servants' hearts, that we would be more like your son every day in the expending of our own lives for those that are other members of the church. Pray you continue to work in our hearts and that that work would be manifest in our lives and in that you would be manifest. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen.